Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, a multimedia project intended to highlight the careers of leaders of color across the healthcare industry. Students, early professionals, and the community at large can expect to gain valuable, unapologetic insight on the career journeys of individuals whose lived experience and personal mission has been centered in advancing health equity. Thanks for listening. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Lisa K. Fitzpatrick, an empathetic doctor who understands science, data, medicine, public health, and people. After an extremely decorated field and career spanning a variety of settings in healthcare, Dr. Fitzpatrick currently serves as founder and CEO of Grapevine Health, a company focused on improving health literacy and patient engagement through storytelling, technology, and feet on the street. Dr. Fitzpatrick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, especially because you all have been working in St. Louis, which is my hometown. Always love the hometown ties, right? Um, thank you so much again for joining us, Dr. Fitzpatrick. Um, we always like to start off with our um, with our features as far as the journey, as far as their story, um, and, and what brought them into healthcare. Um, if you could share with our audience a little bit about yourself and about your journey through healthcare as a leader. Oh, wow. You know, I'm 55 years old, right? So <laughs> that's a little, that will take a little time. Um, but I'll tell you the origin story for um, why I started Grapevine Health. And, um, you, you know, Winston just went over my background a little bit. Um, as you may, I'm sure as you all know, working in St. Louis, St. Louis is a tale of two cities. So I grew up in some of the poorer parts of St. Louis and had an up close and personal view of um, what it's like when you have challenges accessing healthcare. So even as a little girl, um, people may not remember there was a safety net hospital, Homer G. Phillips in St. Louis and it closed. Um, but I remember my mom had to rush my brother uh, to Homer G. Phillips. And when it closed, we were just thinking, wow, well, what do we do now? So I've been thinking about these issues for a long time before I even knew I was going to be a doctor. And I became a doctor uh, because I was good in science. I liked people. And I just found the body fascinating. And I didn't take a traditional approach to healthcare after I graduated from medical school. I went to the six-year program in Kansas City, so I, you know, truncated my education by two years, but made up for it in all these other adventures and fellowships, including working at the CDC in a two-year uh, fellowship program called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. And that's when, that's when I really understood and learned um, the power of public health. And so I've just really combined a lot of life experiences into what I'm doing now. Grapevine Health, um, the, I, the origin story for Grapevine Health is from Atlanta, Georgia. I was at a community meeting and uh, answering the community's questions. And this man, probably a 50 or 60 year old black man, came up to me afterwards and said, how does someone like me access someone like you on a regular basis? And he was trying to figure out how he could find someone who spoke his language, who understood him, who used plain language to explain complex medical 
um, information. And I realized there are millions of people out there like him. And I know that because even if you look at my cell phone and the messages I get, my email, people asking me to demystify information from their healthcare provider, or maybe they're afraid about a symptom they have, need you know some support to help them understand what kind of care to seek. And so I realized in this digital health revolution, we don't see a lot of emphasis, specific emphasis on underserved communities. So I started Grapevine Health to be that go-to source for trusted health information, uh, to help people navigate their bodies, um, make health information more approachable and relatable, um, to take some of the fear out of the healthcare system and to build trust with people. Uh, because a lot of people aren't engaging in healthcare because they're afraid or they don't trust. So um, that's that's why I started Grapevine. It's going pretty well. I, I would say it's it's going more than well. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, you know, just want to bring attention to something that is a kind of a powerful thought. Uh, you know, so Brandon and I both uh, came to St. Louis to start out, well, to really jumpstart our, our careers in healthcare, um, pursuing administrative fellowship, fellowships at Washington University School of Medicine and Barnes Jewish Hospital in particular. And so when you mentioned uh, Homer G being one of the, you know, uh, world famous, um, you know, academic medical centers, but also safety net hospitals in the cities closing. It's just kind of chilling to think, you know, here is a physician who grew up in the city of St. Louis receiving care and also being impacted by the closure of the hospital. Two young brothers who work at the institution that really supposedly took over the primary role as the city safety net. Um, here today kind of speaking about all of this it's just it's just fascinating to me so i just wanted to to call that out because as you said st louis is a tale of two cities but it produces amazing individuals uh such as yourself and so we are <laughs> again lucky to have that connection one thing that i want to talk about because you actually answered a lot of the questions that we had very oh. eloquently <laughs> and efficiently um in that first response can you just go back for a second and talk about you know, the value of public health as it relates to medicine and healthcare in general, because I think that you took that step early on, maybe a part of a generation or a cohort of physicians that were a little ahead of your time. Um, by the time that I think we were coming up in graduate school, my friends in residency, it was more typical for them maybe to think about an MPH or pursuing some type of global health, you know, uh, to supplement their education. But I don't feel like it's as even pronounced and as popular within the medical industry now. So can you just talk about the value of public health um, as a practice, as an approach, and, and just how you see that integrated into your work today? Well, I didn't learn about public health in medical school. And mm. the the what led me to public health is I did, in, in my infectious disease fellowship, I spent almost a year in Zimbabwe. And I met all of these academics um, it was really eye-opening to me. I remember, um, in particular, a researcher from from Hopkins, from Johns Hopkins, and she had, I think, a five million dollar grant to conduct a research study in Zimbabwe. And I got to know them and started collaborating with them, and just realized 
here I am in Zimbabwe. Like I was planning to be, you know, in my infectious disease clinic, like just be a regular doctor. And I'm seeing all these opportunities to influence uh, people's health before they get sick and really understand what are some ways that we can um, mitigate or prevent sickness. And so those conversations with those people who were like really experienced and committed to um, doing public health related research um, was just an, an education for me. So when I came back home, I knew about um, some of the doctors at our public health department in Denver who had gone through the CDC program. So I went to talk to them about the value of going to work for CDC. And they talked about um, a lot of the prevention policies um, that people don't think about, you know, seatbelts, you know, why the reason we have seatbelts, seatbelt and smoking laws are largely because of uh, research and um, policies implemented or recommended by the CDC. Um, also, a lot of field investigations to really understand how disease is spread, um, how you track diseases. Um, all these things were brand new to me, but I learned them when I work when I went to work at CDC. Uh, but I continued to be engaged in the community, and what struck me was how little people understood the value of public health. And we saw a lot of that during the pandemic. People were very skeptical of the recommendations because we actually haven't done a good job building relationships with the community to make sure they understand what public health is, how it's impacting you, how it's all around you, and you don't think about it and you, you don't know or are not aware that it's at work um, to help keep society healthy. And I just wanted to incorporate this into my work as, um, you know, you talked about me increasing health literacy, but this it, health literacy, a broad term focused on ensuring people have access to information they understand and can use. It includes understanding the value of public health. Well, so vaccines are a good example. Vaccines are, are getting a, a bad rap right now. So you see my cough is coming out. Um, <clears throat> vaccines are getting a bad rap right now, but I think largely because people don't understand the power of vaccines and how many lives have been saved as a result of vaccines. So COVID vaccine aside, there are dozens of vaccines. And I actually, during the pandemic, I actually counted all the vaccines I've gotten over my career. And it was more than 20 vaccines. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it was more than 20 vaccines. And I believe a lot of those vaccines kept me from getting sick when I was traveling abroad. And some of these vaccines um, are still saving lives, but because we're not thinking about it, we're not talking about it, we're not educating people about this. Um, we've just you know, allowed a lot of the misinformation and distrust to persist. Um, so these are all the reasons I've wanted to ensure public health is part of my part of my mission. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Fitzpatrick. I will say that just as somebody who 
as the the health administration background, um, I've grown to really appreciate, respect, and and actually really kind of envelop myself into public health because I feel like um, that's the only way that it was marginalized or those communities who basically are underserved are going to get that help is through public health. So when you said the power of public health, I thought that just, you know, that, that rang very true. Um, one of the things that really kind of resonated me with, with me also was what you said in regard to like the, the digital health revolution, um, which I think is here is now, I think it's, it's a matter of just being able to use it the right way. Um, and so at Grapevine, I understand that you guys use technology to help improve health literacy. Um, if you could expound on that a little bit about what you guys do as far as the services you guys provide, or maybe just how you all work with technology now to help improve um, health literacy. One second, my phone is ringing. So this is Murphy's Law. That's my home phone and it never rings. <laughs> Most people don't even have this number. Anyway. That's what I was going to say. I don't think a lot of people have home house phones anymore. Yeah. Um, so the way people are communicating now is via text message and social media. And the healthcare system is woefully behind in meeting people where they're paying attention and where they're consuming information. And so my vision in building Grapevine Health is to ensure people can access the content we create and the information through a channel they're already using or they want to use. So we don't send out you know, emails and pamphlets. And we've had companies ask us, ask us to create you know, written materials. And we've declined because we know that people aren't really consuming information that way. Um, but to me, we, you know, we conducted a study asking people where they get health information and how they want to receive information. And there's a narrative out there that the digital divide, this notion that if you're poor or from an underserved community, you can't access technology or innovative digital solutions. But I think that's not true. I think we have to change or reframe the way we think about that because people are texting I mean, we, I, we just um, had an outreach event over the weekend and there was a gentleman who was recently released from, from prison. He had a smartphone and he sent me a text message yesterday. So it's not that he's unreachable. Maybe he can't use the innovations that have been created because we didn't ask people like him how these innovations should be built. And so we didn't want to make that mistake at Grapevine Health. So that's why we're focusing on text messaging as a delivery mechanism because it's the least common tech denominator. So you can send people information. Uh, people can ask us questions. Um, we get a lot of questions from folks about why, you know, how, how do you get around HIPAA? Well, first of all, we're not providing medical advice or diagnosing people, we're clarifying. So one of the questions I got recently was, can you look at this report and tell me, do I have cancer? because it said they had polyps and they called them precancerous polyps. So if you don't understand medical jargon and you see the word cancer, no matter what context it's in, it might raise questions. 
And so we can answer questions like that. Oh, precancerous means this. Um, so, you know, I think we also have to give people the agency to say how they want to communicate with us. If they want to text, then who are we to say they can? If they want to tell us about their diabetes over text message, as long as they've agreed to do so, why should HIPAA be a concern? So that's another area in, uh, on the policy side that I want Grapevine to be influential to really demonstrate um, the power of text messaging to build trust, to deliver information, to help people navigate uh, the healthcare system. Uh, because while there is a digital divide when it comes to broadband, maybe, why don't we innovate for the technology people are already using? So that's that's um that's what we're we're doing. And our, our text message solution platform is called Health Text, a very simple name. And the goal is to to allow people to have a go-to source for health information using text messaging. Yeah, it's actually, um, I think everything that Grapevine does is beautifully simplistic in terms of just the ability and capacity for, you know, providers to really be able to to do um, what you all do. And I think that, um, you know, it is a challenge for the healthcare industry, I think, because we have been so driven by, pro, you know, procedure, protocol, standardization. Um putting on that white coat or the scrubs or the suit and ties and administration, whatever it may be, and just having that function and doing what you're doing inside the hospital walls without thinking, okay, how is the world really changing? And I'm glad that you brought up the misnomer regarding the digital divide, because I think it definitely is real when it comes to broadband access. And I think that in the home that, you know, results in certain things, but everyone virtually has a cell phone. <laughs> nowadays right you know most people do and i've even okay. been i've been on projects where you know i've asked you know patients well hey how are you all getting your information they pull up the my chart app like duh dude and i'm like oh okay i didn't know I right, wow y'all are surprising me um one of the things dr fitzpatrick that i want to dive into is with the use of this technology with um you all's actual showing up on the, with the feet on the street you have an opportunity to really form relationships um, and dive into the culture, you know, as physicians, as providers, as healthcare officials in a way that other people aren't. Um, and so uh, you were gracious enough to send us the book, uh, which is excellent. Everyone has to check it out. Um, the Birth of Grapevine Health, A Doctor's Journey to Build Trust and Restore Humanity in Medicine. But there is a concept regarding trust that I definitely want to talk about. And we talked about it a little bit um, before we started officially recording. You uncovering uh, the notion that in the community, um, in, you know, uh, Black communities in particular, this notion that doctors are drug dealers does exist. And I found that fascinating that you even included it in that book, right? As I'm reading that you're calling this out because I'm like, man, that's real. That is something that I know I felt like, my uncles and my aunts felt like, my mom and my dad felt like, everybody on my block. That's something that we say, but as a healthcare professional, it's not anything I've ever brought up, you know, within my peers or in my spaces. So, you know, you and I talked about the discomfort, maybe, 
from the provider side or from a the healthcare side in terms of having to honor that trust and really honor what people are saying. So can you talk, you know, just about that concept and what you do to encourage other providers or find and network with other people who have the ability and the capacity to be open um, and have these kind of brave spaces in conversations with communities? Well, it's not easy. I think there's a bias and elitism in healthcare, particularly in academic centers around how you communicate. Because while I have a whole lexicon that allows me to talk to researchers and other academics, I don't need to use that information or that, you know, manner of speaking when I'm talking to the public. And if I do, the onus is on me to explain what I'm saying. So maybe I want to use a word like colonoscopy. And then right behind that, I have to make sure people understand exactly what that is, why I want you to get it, and how it's done. So finding other providers who, because that takes time. So finding other providers who are willing to take the time, but also learn. This is not necessarily a behavior that's learned in medical school and even in residency. And no one's really calling it out. Um, and you only hear about it after someone leaves an engagement with a provider or a had a hospitalization and you say, oh, well, what happened? And they can't tell you. I had a gentleman over the weekend who told me his doctor said, um, well, there's something wrong with my, with my back. I have a radiculo. And I said, you mean a radiculopathy? He's like, yeah, that's the word. I said, do you know what that is? He says, no, not really. And that's a failure on the provider side because it's our responsibility to make sure people know what we're talking about. So for us to find people who are committed to plain language in healthcare and recognizing that you're still a smart person, you're still very credible if you speak in a language that's relatable that people can understand. Um, but that's it's hard because we try to find um, folks who are good at it already and it's very challenging. In fact, I'm thinking about having, you know, somewhat of a star search competition and letting the community be the judge um, to sort of, uh, you know, the idea is to have doctors competing to see who can give the best plain language explanation. And that can help us find more grapevine doctors. We kind of find them organically right now. Uh, people we've interacted with or we've seen them speak on video or have seen them in action explaining complex medical terms to the public. And that's usually how we go about our outreach. But we need much more of that because Grapevine is a scalable solution. Like this is needed in every city and every state in the country. In fact, it's probably needed globally, but we're focusing right here at home. Um, to find doctors in other states. Like we came to St. Louis, even though we're DC based, we came to St. Louis, we found two very good doctors who were interested in educating the community. So we need to find people like that everywhere. But it's it's kind of a high bar <laughs> to find doctors who are willing to, you know, come off the pedestal. They may, they may not see it as a pedestal, but that's how the community sees it. When we speak in our medical jargon, and don't take the time to make sure they understand. They think we're being condescending um, and maybe even uh, disrespectful because we're not ensuring they understand uh, what we're saying. So this is really important to us, Zachary Bynes. Yeah, I did um, uh, 
want to just follow up with that because I think this is a, a fascinating concept because what you're doing, um, you're changing the perception of doctors in the community, right? Um, because I think number one, unfortunately, there is a reality among some that you know the healthcare industry is out to kill them, right? I mean, some people, you know, I, I you know live in St. Louis, D.C., wherever, where some of the most prestigious institutions are, but they really think that. This place is not for me. And so I think the first thing that I just want to call out is just, again, the humanity and the empathy behind the care that you're providing when you're just available and, mm -hmm. and you're accessible, right, to the community. I mean, it's a huge deal. I also, you know, Brandon, I'd be curious. I don't know, you know, if you have thoughts on this. Working with younger residents and fellows, um, particularly once they're done their training, I think a lot of our f future workforce and emerging workforce, they have the desire to do what you're you're doing um, as well. But I think that, you know, there's kind of still this thought of like, I got to build my credibility, cut my teeth. I need to be, you know, in this environment where I got to survive. I don't meet as much people who have that entrepreneurial spirit. Or really, you know, have the capacity to say, well, yeah, I could, you know, launch a great, you know, Vine Health chapter, you know, somewhere uh, in St. Louis. And so around the encouragement, how would you encourage, you know, future uh, physicians or, you know, uh, physicians right now that are young, just finished their training to really start, you know, getting, you know, their feet wet in some of the community engagement and outreach efforts. You know, what are those, those, I guess, motivational quotes or, you know, inspirational things that you would say <laughs> to them? Well, you know, medical school and residency are very challenging times. You don't have a lot of um, extra time to engage in things like this, unless it's, part of your curriculum or it's helping you meet some requirement. Um, so that's the first thing. But I think if this is of interest to people, they can be creative about how they find ways um, to, to focus on community engagement or engage with organizations like Grapevine. Uh, we've had a handful of, over the years, I've had a handful of medical students who made it a priority to figure out how to be either on the street with Grapevine or helping us um, in other ways. And so I think it's really a calling. Um, as long as they know about us, then they can self-select in uh, to help us. We've had plenty of students and residents who've heard about Grapevine and they love the idea and they reach out and say, oh, this is exactly what I want to be involved in. But their time demands just take over and we never hear from them again. Or, you know, they sign up to do something and then they have to pull out because they just don't have time. Um, on the entrepreneurial side, like these are things that are introduced to us or that we learn in medical school, even residency. Um, a lot of people who go into primary care practice on their own, like that's a business. But you don't learn those things in medical school and residency. So you have to seek that out on your own. And the way I decided to pursue entrepreneurship was by taking a step back and looking at all the things I'd done over the last 25 years and figuring out what would give me the flexibility and freedom to do what I wanted to do in the way I thought it needed to be done. Because sometimes working inside, or most times working inside organizations, there are too many guardrails for you to interact with and meet the community in a way um, you know, that's approachable and accessible. So I didn't have to ask anybody when I decided to go on the street 
and start talking to people to see what will happen. And people have such a positive response to seeing a doctor out in the community that it just kept going. So um, that's kind of a long wandering way to answer your question, but I think um, it's very difficult for people in training to focus on entrepreneurial ventures, but especially because, um, you know, the, the credit they get or sort of the accolades are more on, did you do a research project or did you publish something? Not, did you, you know, how much did you engage with the community and what, you know, what trust have you built with the community? That's not really a current, a currency that's valued in academics and students and residents know that. We'll make it, we'll make it valued. <laughs> I was going to say, I think it should be. Um, but I think you're making a good call out in regards to the priority being towards research, which usually generates dollars, right? It brings money to the universities, to the hospital system, mm -hmm. um, where I think, you know, this is the beauty of public health is that the focus is not so much where the money makes or where the money is made, but more so where the impact is the greatest. Um, and, and, and one of the things that I really enjoy about this talk about public health is that I understand that healthcare is local and that community engagement is crucial in order for that whatever the, the narrative may be in regards to transportation, maybe in regards to um, uh, medication adherence, um, just whatever the, the issue may be, public health has a stance or a priority that the patient or the health outcome is the priority. Um, and to your point earlier, I think, you know, with academic medical centers and these bigger hospital systems, sometimes it gets it gets lost because they're, they're, they're trying to keep the lights on, they're trying to grow, they're trying mm -hmm. to, you know, capture more market. Um, and 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 I do think you know to this point, it's really about putting this, putting this narrative or putting this in front of the future generations who will push that. Um, and so, kudos to you for 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 kind of just being a, a pioneer and a trailblazer somewhat, and just kind of carving out that path for people to follow. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's it's definitely been a journey, but it's been a long time coming. I mean, I wouldn't have known to try something like this 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Wow. Which is such a profound statement because yeah. 10 years ago, it's what, you know, it's 2013. So we know we're all texting by then that's, it's our normal behavior now. Right. And the technology it's it, but it just, it goes to show just how the application of things still can take time. And Honestly, that statement really reemphasizes just how far behind how we are. I think so far behind. Yeah, I think in in 2014, um, a young lady I know was on Facebook. It was a Saturday morning, and she got on Facebook and was crowdsourcing information about a rash she had when she woke up. Hmm. And I thought to myself, why is she asking people on Facebook what to do about her rash? So I sent her a message and asked her to text me a photograph. And we had a conversation over text about it. And I, I knew immediately what it was. Um, and I, you know, suggested she do something. And she wrote me back in 30 minutes. She was like, oh, that totally worked. You saved me $150. And thank you so much. And so I said, would you find a service like this valuable? She said, absolutely. And then she wrote like a six bullet point um, statement on Facebook about why basically she was saying telehealth is like what we need for the community. And so I took that as a signal that it's time to really try and innovate for underserved communities. 
I also had a, a gentleman send me a text message who said, my cousin has boils all over his body. What can he do? And I, you know, those are the kind of, like, these are the things that frighten people. They don't know who to go to or where to turn. And they need someone to help them navigate this. And so he knew me. He knew I was a doctor who was out in the community. He had my cell phone number. And I was the one he thought to reach out to. So it just goes to show and there are so many people who need a service like this. That is uh, absolutely, um, it's just critical. I think it's critical. Again, very simple, you know, simple idea. And I think mm -hmm. even when we think about telehealth, it's very interesting because I definitely have my critiques from a healthcare system standpoint. But I think being able to see you do it from a grassroots kind of startup um, angle is way different than how, you know, healthcare systems are approaching it. Because again, there's actual accessibility when it comes to that kind of one-to-one -one, um, interaction. So I, I just love highlighting that. One thing, uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick, that I do just want to ask you, it's a general question. Um, but again, because you're, you're such an influential voice on a lot of different topics in the industry, um, you know, this episode is going to come out in January. It's the beginning of the year. What are some of the things that you are following in terms of stories in healthcare? I think that, you know, there's a lot of different things going on in, in a bunch of different spaces. We've seen the FDA approve this new CRISPR-based uh, therapy for sickle cell, but there might be a lot of complications with that. We have, you know, I think the adoption of value-based care is still going. You know, some states are still, you know, expanding or in the process of expanding, fingers crossed. Um, we still have a bunch of stuff in maternal health, you know, all of, of these different, you know, topics. So what are some of the stories that you're following closely um, as we kick off the new year? The big one for me is what's going to happen with value-based care. I think we're sort of all over the map talking about this. We're not talking about it in the same way. People are thinking about it in different ways. And ultimately, how does value-based care get us to better outcomes? And so those are the kinds of conversations I'll be in and um, want to um, keep on my radar. I think the overall challenge with value-based care is that it's not focused on prevention. Mm. Um, it's really focused on, sure, people, you know, come into the health system, they have a sick, you know, they have a multiple, multiple chronic conditions or sick. And how do we like optimize health for those people? But why aren't we focusing on how to actually keep people healthy from the beginning? And to me, that is missing in value-based care. I also am very concerned about the uh, refusal of certain states to expand Medicaid. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer to me. The states are eating the cost of this anyway. Uh, if people don't have health insurance, they end up in the ER, they delay care, they end up in the ICU because of a you know health catastrophe. And then who's going to pay for that? Usually the state somehow. So... I just think it's fascinating and I really want part of our mission to become storytelling in those states to really put some of those stories on the radar and show how much harm is actually happening. Thank you, Dr. I apologize. I didn't know if there was another call coming, so I just wanted to make sure we got it, we got it all out. But um, I, I agree um, wholeheartedly um with with what you're saying um it's it's 
it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's a barrier. Um, that you know this 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 thing that we. I mean, honestly, I don't understand it myself as far as the Medicaid expansion. Um, but thanks to organizations like Grapevine, I think you know, in the by and by, these are um, gap fillers. So when it comes to health literacy for marginalized communities, I think the most important thing is that people are having a place that they can go to with their problems because um, nine times out of 10, they're not going to their PCP and asking the right questions or even knowing the right jargon or understanding what they're getting from their PCP. So having somebody that is a sounding board, I think is invaluable. Um, especially for those communities who just don't feel comfortable asking those questions or even like in your book, right? There's a trust issue as far as how valid these diagnoses are. Um, so, so thank you so much. You know, it's common for, um, for us to have conversations about why people don't engage in primary care consistently. We have a lot of information from the community about that. It's the experience. Do you know, how long does it take you to get a primary care visit? And how do people treat you when you go to a primary care visit? Is the doctor or the healthcare provider listening to you? Are they tailoring your care so that it makes sense for you or just sort of rattling off like the, you know, standard uh, responses we give people for a specific health condition? So we have to do a lot of introspection in asking this question, why are, why are, why are people not engaged? We have to ask, how can we make them want to engage? How do we create a better experience? And will we ever get to the point that we understand that all primary care can't be implemented in, inside four walls? And I'm not talking about telehealth. I'm talking about going to where people are already paying attention, where they're already engaged. Like a lot of the organizations that, so, that focus on social drivers, like food banks, you know? Uh, people who provide employment assistance or job training. Why aren't we taking, you know, basic care and upstream diagnostics to places like that? Um, but we know the answer. It's because we have to get them in the four walls so that we can bill for it. And so I think value-based care also means shifting away from that and finding ways to be okay with delivering care in places that are not traditional, where people are already hanging out, want to be, know people, places they trust. Um, but I mean, this institution was built over hundreds of years. So it's going to take a while, but I think that's what it'll, that's what it'll take. Because when people say, well, the doctors don't care about me or they don't trust, or I don't trust them or they're drug dealers. It's because we, it's a very transactional, unidirectional relationship. So come here, do this, be on time, sit down and wait for me, take this. Why didn't you take that? Instead of what would make it the easiest for you to engage in this relationship? And that's what we need. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, You have uh, solved a big piece of a big puzzle like a huge 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 puzzle no We're i think you, no because you, you touched on so many different things and we really could honestly talk for another hour honestly because i think value-based care um like you said a lot of different perspectives 
Um, and everyone, I kind of feel like is trying to avoid the true application of it. If we're being honest, we see from a healthcare side, you know, we kind of just, okay, we have our accountable care organization. We're going to do some healthcare outcome stuff with a few people. Boom. That's what it's going to be. And we have the numbers to show for it. Check the box. I think, you know, the payers could be a lot more, you know, aggressive in terms of what they're demanding. But of course, there's all types of politics, you know, attached to that. And then I think it's something that I find fascinating because I was really connecting the dots here. How does this impact how we're doing uh, primary care? A lot of, you know, I feel like people kind of are hands off in terms of like, we're not going to put a bunch of money into, you know, even outpatient facilities or really trying to meet the community um, where they need to be overemphasizing specialties and continuing to push a workforce to pursue education um, in that regard. And it's just tough because like you said, you know, this is the institution that's been built over hundreds of years and we're kind of seeing all of these things snowball. But at the same time, an individual like yourself and Grapevine Health as an organization are bringing light, I think, and inspiration just to push people into a totally different direction. Um, so that's why I said this, you are a big piece of a bigger puzzle. Um, and, and like you said, this is a, your work. And I think, um, the model could be adopted city to city, country to country everywhere. Um, but Dr. Fitzpatrick, we promised we'd get you out of here, uh, before the hour is up. And so we, uh, did want to go ahead, um, and wrap up. It's been a fascinating, um, fascinating conversation uh you have just given us a lot to think about a lot for our listeners to chew on so i'm excited to see the response uh and the last thing i will ask is anyone if they want to connect with you maybe just find out more about you be able to follow you what are the best platforms um for them to do so yeah actually sending a message to info at grapevinehealth.com um now, LinkedIn's a funny one for me because while I have a decent platform there, a lot of people reach out to me, but they don't tell me why. And if you ask for a LinkedIn connection and you don't help me understand why you want to talk to me, why you want to meet me, why does this even make sense for us to me, I generally don't respond. Um, so I think people, you know, instead of just clicking connect, I need some context. And so um, the other thing about LinkedIn is I get a lot of inbound from students and trainees in public health and in medicine. And I already mentor a handful of people and it's really hard. So if you're coming to me for mentor advice, you need to tell me specifically how I can help you and what you need. Um, I'm not in a position to take on long-term mentorships, but I'm more than happy uh, to respond to specific questions, but you have to be very direct and specific None of this, oh, I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life now. I thought you'd be a great mentor. Like, no, thanks. So, um, and then I'm I'm on and off Twitter. I look at the messages on there now and then. Um, but I'm very easy to find on social media. So I'm trying to work on my Instagram. Um, probably not best to find me on Instagram, but definitely on my email or uh, they can also send a text message to Grapevine Health, and I give you that number. It's 202-702-8175. Okay. Well, you all heard it there first. Dr. Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for an amazing conversation. Sure. Thank you all for having me, and good luck with your work. 
Well, that's it for the episode, and we want to thank you for listening to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Make sure to check us out each month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and stay up to date with the Healthcare Hustle fam by following our page on LinkedIn. The marathon continues, so keep on hustling.